I'm grateful to be here. Uh, a lot of memories in this place. Uh, it, I know Christian said a little bit about me. I uh, graduated in 2011 from Sterling with a degree in English, which I'm not really using, but uh, it was a great run. Um, I uh, married my wife, Betsy, in 2015, or, oh gosh, I should get this right, 2013, and we recently had our first kid. His name's Pierce. He's seven months years old. And we are officially moving into our house that we bought, which is exciting, uh, but a little stressful at the same time. So uh, I'm just really glad to be here and not unpacking boxes. Back in 2011, uh, when I graduated from Sterling, uh, the summer before my senior year, I remember I went on a mission trip to Fiji. Many of you may have gone on mission trips through Sterling. I I had some awesome experiences But there's a memory that is so vivid to me um, that it's one that I have some mental snapshots that I often go to because it was such an incredible experience. The last day of the trip, after we had spent three or four days in a village sleeping on concrete, eating really strange foods that we didn't know what we were eating, um, absolutely exhausted, we took a day of rest. And there were some of the people who were so tired that all they wanted to do was take a nap and rest and go shopping. But there were a few of us who were braver and we said, you know what? We need to find the best beach with the biggest waves and we are going to go surfing. So we went on Google. We were at at a hotel there and we searched biggest waves in Fiji and we found this beach on a a forum. And these were the words that said, this is the best beach you will find. It's kind of hard to find it. You have to travel all these weird paths to get there. You really need to know a local to get there. Um, But when you get there, there is going to be miles and miles of white sand. And there are going to be sand dunes, and there are going to be the best surfing waves on the entire island. And so we're like, this is it. But there was one caveat. You see, at the end of it, it said, but beware shark-infested waters. It's kind of terrifying. So we weighed the risk. We said, let's do it. Um, we uh, found a guy. This is, this is so strange. And now that I think about it, being a mature adult, I'm thinking, well, I can't believe a bunch of college students did this. But there was a guy standing outside the hotel who was like, where are you guys going? I know where you're going. I'll take you. Just give me 20 bucks. All right. So we gave this guy 20 bucks. He took us to his house, which is kind of weird. Uh, he had a boogie board. He let us rent. He had some drinks he got for us. And we got in his car and we drove to this beach. He knew exactly where it was. After traversing all these windy roads and we, he had a machete, we're cutting through these, these weeds to get to this place. There's a little shack and this guy comes out of the shack and he has no teeth and he's missing an arm. This is, this is true. Jack can uh, validate this. He was with me. And I'm with my brother, Mike, my brother, Jack, my best friend, Zach, and a couple, a couple other people who were with me at the time. I, I can't remember everybody's with us, but we're at this point, and we ask him, well, what happened to your arm? And he says, oh, the shark bit it off. And we're like, here? He's like, yeah. So this isn't, this isn't instilling much confidence in us, all right? But we're at the shack. We decided to go to the beach anyway, and I'm telling you, it is unlike anything you can imagine. The sand is white. The waves are huge. I'm talking dangerously big, right? We, we had these boogie boards and you would get on top of the wave. And if you've ever been boogie boarding, um, you really are at the mercy of the wave. If you don't get on top of it, the wave will just slam you down to the ground. And the waves were so incredible that it was a little bit scary at times. I came out with a sore shoulder and a couple cuts. 
um, which is never fun in salt water. And luckily, none of us got eaten by sharks, but it was uh, really an awesome experience. I remember that day because it may be in the top five best days of my life. I remember spending the entire day on the beach. I remember traveling in the sand dunes and sliding down these huge hills. I remember experiencing the full joy of life, the full happiness in that moment, being with some of my best friends and my family and and just absolutely soaking in every moment. But nine hours later, I'm on a plane heading back to Wichita. And I remember feeling Think, things had changed a little bit. I had this awesome experience, this crazy high, and then all of a sudden I'm on my way back and I'm in pure agony. You see, we used sunscreen, but the one I used was expired, come to find out. Or it was weak, or I'm just really fair-skinned, one or the other. I, I'm talking the worst sunburn of my life. Blisters on my back, right? I, I took multiple, like, like way too many ibuprofen on the plane, trying to ease the pain. It did nothing. 14-hour flight across the entire world. I'm in so much pain and agony. Now understand something. I went from this extreme experience, feelings of joy and happiness, to all of a sudden feeling suffering and agony and pain. It was the longest 14 hours of my life. But I think sometimes life can be like that. We can experience great moments of joy Great moments of happiness, and in the next waking moment, something could happen. We could get a phone call and find out a loved one has passed. Find out a friend is sick. Have someone say something hurtful to you, and all of a sudden, you just feel sick in your stomach. Right In a moment, you can go from great joy to great sadness. And what I want to talk about tonight is something that the Apostle Paul makes very clear. He talks about contentment. And the main point I want to come across tonight is that contentment that Paul talks about is not contingent upon our circumstances. It does not depend on our circumstances. We're going to be in Philippians 4, verse 10 through 13. Here's what it says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What's interesting here, and what I'm going to repeat over and over tonight, is that Paul is saying contentment does not depend on circumstance, but it is rooted in our confidence in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's speaking about his hardships, difficulties, and the fact that he even had a thorn in his flesh, and that it has been hard and difficult and humbling for him. And then he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, all things that are out of Paul's control. But he says, I am content for when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, he's speaking to the circumstances saying, even in the hard circumstances, I've learned what it is to be content 
And I've learned to be content even in my weaknesses. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul is telling Timothy to not be like those false teachers and who are greedy for gain and glory. He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So again, Paul is speaking uh, to situations and circumstances of life, encouraging Timothy to have a heart that is content in God, regardless of what he has or doesn't have. Now, before we really understand contentment, I think one of the important things is to understand what's underneath discontentment. Because I would wager that many of you spend parts of your life, seasons of your life, discontent. And the reason I know that is because I know myself. Just by way of confession, I need to confess that I've spent a lot of my life in being discontent for one reason or another. There have been seasons where I was discontented in my singleness, wrestling with loneliness, being unhappy in my job, friendships, my bank account. For one reason or another, I have wrestled with discontentment and it has manifested itself in different ways at different seasons. I remember my freshman year of college, I came in thinking I was going to conquer the world. I had three jobs, which is not intelligent if you're a freshman. Okay, maybe one job. I had three jobs. One of the jobs was very stressful. I worked at Gambino's and I worked at the church, the cross point down, down the road. But I also worked at uh, the Sterling Bulletin, which is a newspaper, local newspaper. I was a sports editor. I took photos. I did the writing. I did the web design, which I was terrible at. And I remember working at this environment, which, which really wasn't very nice. Um, my boss was a chain smoker, and smoking somehow was allowed inside. I don't know if that's legal. Um, there were cats everywhere, which is crazy. Like, I'd be working, right? It'd be like midnight, and all of a sudden I'd see this cat rub up against my leg. It'd be terrifying and disturbing. I'm not a big fan of cats. Um, so we've got cats, smoke, constant smell of smoke, um, was not a good, good situation, and I worked a lot of hours. I remember there was this project that my boss gave me. I had to do pictures for all the Sterling High School teams and all the Sterling College teams. Um, and I had to go around and take pictures and go through the rosters and talk about the seasons and put this big booklet together, and I was going to get a good paycheck for it, and I was excited about that. But I remember it was the deadline, and I was up at 3 a.m. trying to get this thing finished. I remember hitting this point, this breaking point, when I felt so overwhelmed and so anxious about doing a good job in this project, about a lot of other things going in my life, about some relationship stuff that had gone awry, about just so many different things had compounded. And I, I got to this breaking point where I think I can count on my, my hand the number of times I've cried uh, in the last five years, but this was when I just broke down in tears. So here I am huddled, Right on the floor, on the Sterling Bulletin on Broadway, absolutely broken and feeling anxious and feeling overwhelmed. Maybe you've been to a breaking point, some point in your life where things came together, you found out some bad news or, or something happened or you lost a loved one. Whatever happened, but you, you, you've gone through something that has brought you to that point and, and if I look back at myself then, if I were to go back in time and say something to 2000, what would that have been? 2008 Matt. 
I remember, um, I remember back then, I think this is what I would tell myself. First thing is I would ask myself, what is it that you want so badly that because you don't have it, you're miserable? You see, it's not your old self that you want back. It's not the old you that want back. It's the idols that you want back. And then I would look at myself in the eye and I would say, God's acceptance and love for you cannot be gained by your successes and it cannot be forfeited by your failures. It's a quote from Tim Keller. And if you want the approval of man, you can have it, but God loves you too much to give it to you. You see, that was my idol. I wanted the approval of my boss. I wanted the approval of my friends. I wanted people to view me in a certain way. And I've struggled with this, this desire for approval my entire life. And in that moment, I believe that God would not give it to me in that moment because he wanted me to be humbled. That's something that's always been important to me. It's finding approval. And I think a lot of it is rooted in my own idolatry. I want the acceptance and approval of my friends, my family, my chain-smoking boss, the community. Right? I wanted approval from others. I would suggest that some of you tonight may have anchored your identity in something other than Jesus. And it's crippling you. It's enslaving you. Perhaps you're captive to it. Whatever it is, whatever is the thing that you feel like if you could just have fill in the blank, then you'd be happy. When I took the job at, at, at Eastminster, the church where I work, after I graduated, I wrestled with a lot of loneliness. I was single at the time. All my friends were getting married. Um, wrestled with the pain of loneliness. I was living alone in an apartment. Went, went through some, some dark times uh, wrestling with that. I wrestled with job anxiety. And I remember my discontentment being very amplified. Now, God has been working in my heart since then. Uh, a lot of good things happening, but I can't say that I've arrived. I'm not there. I haven't quite gotten to that place where Paul says, I have found the secret of being content. I'm, I'm not saying I'm there, but I've learned a lot along the way. And I want to share some of that with you tonight. Here, here's what I believe. Here's the truth and what I want to... Um, get across to you tonight. I believe that you and I are struggling to be content primarily because of our inability to trust God. It's not simply because you're single. It's not simply because you don't like the way you look. It's not because you're not getting the approval of whoever it is you're trying to prove. It's not because of your relationships or you don't have enough money in the bank account. Those are all things that add to it. But ultimately, it's our inability to trust God that leaves us being discontent. I think that's why discontentment surfaces in our lives the way that it does. And I think it's something that needs to be killed in us. I think killing the discontentment is the first step in moving in the right direction. Now, when we flip over that rock, we look what's underneath discontentment, because discontentment is, is, is the sin that I'm talking about. But if we go deeper, we look what's underneath that, I think we're going to find some other stuff. And that's what I want to look at. And when I talk about discontentment, I'm talking about what the Bible says when it talks about murmuring and, and grumbling against God. And the first thing that I think can be exposed underneath that rock is ingratitude and arrogance. I think that our discontentment 
and grumbling points and exposes in us a lack of gratitude towards God. We become so mindful of what we want but don't have that it suffocates our ability to be thankful for what we do have. And if you're a Christian here this evening, I'm not assuming that all of you are. Some of you may um, not be in that place, and, and that's okay. This stuff still, I think, applies to a lot of us. But if you're a Christian and you're here this evening, you have received the gift of God's grace, which is an incredible gift that none of us deserve, but it's an amazing and awesome gift. And I want you to hear this because I think we need to hear it over and over again. God has forgiven your sins, all of them, past, present, future. He has forgiven you. He has opened your blind eyes. He has healed your soul. And that is incredible news. He has done all these incredible things through his son, Jesus. And yet many of us are frustrated with God because we want more. We're unable to be grateful because we're constantly chasing after the things we think will satisfy our soul, but ultimately leave us empty. Whether we want a relationship, more stuff, we want to look a certain way, whatever it is that we're chasing often leaves us unsatisfied. So what else is underneath our our discontentment? I think arrogance is there. I think we're discontent because we believe that we may have a better plan for our life than God does. We've never say it that way, but I think for most of us, it's the way our actions reveal inside of us. We think that we have a better plan for our life. We think we can manage our life better than God has or is. We know that we, we know we're, we think we're better or smarter than God and we get frustrated and, and, and when we get frustrated, we often wander. I love that line in that song, come now found, prone to wander. How often have we wandered? And I think many of us wander because we think that our control over our life is going to give us a better life. This is what you see in Genesis 3. When the serpent said to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Did he really say, don't do this? Do you know what God doesn't want for you? He knows that if you eat from the tree, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like him. And all of that was alluring to Adam and Eve, just like it's alluring to you and I. We want to be sovereign. We want to manage and control our lives. We, want to think, we think that deep down we can do a better job of, of living a life that'll bring us happiness. I think underneath our discontentment is arrogance and ingratitude. I think two other things that are underneath that are lust and greed. The idea that we always want more. We see this in children. I have a seven-month-old, and uh, when I hang out with, with him, I, I love to throw him up in the air, and he giggles and gets really happy. And then sometimes I'll do it, and then I'll hold him and be like, all right, that's enough. And he'll start crying again. He'll be like, do it again. Right? He's not saying it out loud, but that, that's what he wants. He wants me to keep playing with them. Right, kids, they always want more. I remember when I was in Fiji, we were in that, this village, right? It was surrounded by sugarcane, no electricity. We're sleeping on concrete floors. It was nuts. And I remember uh, I saw my brother Mike over by this tree. And there were these kids, these Fijian children who had climbed up the tree. And one of them thought it would be funny just to jump in the air and have Mike catch him. So this kid leaps from the tree and Mike catches the kid, sits him down, and all the other kids are like, this looks awesome, right? So they all run to the tree and they start leaping. And I'm looking over at Mike and Mike's catch. He's catching these kids and they're jumping left and right. Some of these kids are big kids, right? 
And I'm like, I better go over there and help him. So I run over there and these kids are jumping and we're, we're catching them and setting them down and catching them. And they're getting braver and braver and getting higher and higher in the tree. And finally, it gets to a point where I look at Mike and I'm like, we both gave each other this like brother's look. Like, I don't think I can catch another kid. My arm is about to fall off. And, uh, but they kept jumping, right? And more kids kept coming and they kept getting higher and higher. And finally, I'm like, Mike, we just have to, we just have to let them jump and run away. Like there's, there's no other way they're going. We don't speak their language. There's no other way we're going to get them to stop. So we start backing up like we're going to leave and they just keep jumping out farther, right? They're like jumping parallel. It's unbelievable. And we just keep trying to catch them till finally we just have to turn and run. And um, it was crazy. But this is what kids do, right? They want more. They always want more. But I think often we are like children, and in a lot of ways, our greed, our desire for more, we long for it. Now, this is a, that was a strange example, but I think that is the posture of our heart. At the bottom, underneath these things, I think even beneath the greed, what is driving and compelling our discontentment is always idolatry. Beneath every grumble, every murmur, every complaint that we bring to God, every moment of frustration, the sin beneath the sin is the fact that we want something more than we want a relationship with God. And we love something more than we love God. And because we do, until he provides that for us, we're going to be discontent and dissatisfied. Because we long for things, we, we desire more and more and more, and we don't chase after God. Tim Keller said, beneath every sin is the failure to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. There's a story about these scientists who created an experiment where they took these rats and they put them in this cage. And in this cage, they, on one side, they put food and on the other side, they, they put a little gate in the middle. And on the other side, they put uh, this, this little button, right? That all they had to do was walk on it. And it was a sensor. And then they attached these electrodes to the, to the rat's brain. And every time that rat would go and step on that button, it would shock, it would send these, these, these waves of pleasure to the rat's brain. So they first, they sent him over to the food. They said, all right, we're going to open just the gate to the, to the food. And the rat went and they ate the, the food or the cheese or whatever it was. And the next time around, they opened the other gate to the button. And the rat went to the button and experienced the pleasure coming to its brain. And at that point, they opened both gates and they watched the rat to see what would happen. Every day at a certain time, they would open the gates and see what the rat would do. And over and over and over again, the rat chose the button to the point to where the, the rat became malnourished and ultimately starved himself to death. You see, it's our failure to trust God that we so often run back to pleasure that leaves us more exhausted and malnourished than we've ever been. It was G.K. Chesterton that said, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. I'm read that again. Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. How true is this? The pleasure, the things that we seek after, 
that we, that we think are going to make us happy long-term often give us a high, give us an excitement, but ultimately do not sustain us. They can't give us life. And beneath the sin, beneath every sin is the failure to believe that anything I need, I already possess in Christ. So here's what happens, all right? When we let discontentment grow in us, when we let that grow and turn into something else, it erodes our worship. We can't worship when the two are at odds. And if we can't worship God, we usually end up worshiping ourselves. It's kind of a natural cycle. And that becomes exhausting. That's not what we were created to do. And it leads to bitterness. It leads to despair. And I believe that worship is our response to God for, what, what he is, for who he is and for what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you want to be who God is and you're not satisfied with what he's done in your life, you don't worship. You can't. You can sing songs, but you can't worship. I know many of you can probably relate to that. You may have sang a song, but not really worshiped. And often, not only does it erode our worship, but when we actually receive something from God, when God actually blesses us, what we receive only reminds us of the fact that we still haven't got what we really want. So here, here, I'm going to pause for a second and ask a few questions. And I hope that you would wrestle with these questions no matter where you're at. I want you to wrestle with these questions. What is the state of your heart? How content are you in life right now? If you're not content, in what areas of your life are you discontent? Are you discontent relationally? Are you discontent with the way you look, with your body? Are you discontent, discontent with, your, with your classes, with your finances, with your purpose in life? If you're not content, where is the discontentment? And here's the question I think, I think will help us get to the bottom of this. This is the question I want you to really think about. What thing or person, if you had it, do you think would make you content? What thing or person, if you had it, do you think would make you content? Because I think if you can identify that, if you can point to that, you can get to the root of what's causing your discontentment and the root of your idolatry. Sometimes I think we're afraid to grow content because we're afraid that God's going to leave us there if we do. Um, what I mean by that is just a word. When I wrestled with discontent for, for being single, uh, after college, I wrestled with that. All my friends were getting married. I know what it's like at a small college. People are spring fever. People are starting to date, Right? This is kind of what happens. And I, and I remember feeling this pain, this loneliness of being single. But I know many people who never nurtured contentment while they were single. And they have brought a weight of discontentment into their marriage. I've seen it with my friends. The idea that it will go away when you find a spouse or that someday when you have a relationship that will fulfill you and take away your discontentment is flat out wrong. That's not how it works. No person can absolutely fulfill you. That's an unfair weight to put on anybody. So if that's your expectation, I think you need to ask yourself some hard questions. So what's the cure? What's the solution? 
Philippians 4.11, I'm going to go back there. This is what Paul says. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What I want to point out this morning is, or this evening, excuse me, is that contentment for Paul is not a gift. It's not as if some material need is being met, but rather it is something that is learned. Does that make sense? So it's not something that is given necessarily, but something that is learned. It's a process. You're not just going to all of a sudden get there. I'm not there. I haven't arrived. I'm still learning what that looks like. Jesus isn't like a pill. Right? Not, not some kind of pill you swallow that all of a sudden fixes your problems. One of my, one of my authors that I loved in college, his name is Donald Miller. Um, he, he wrote this. And I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty great. He says, can you imagine the Apostle Paul trying to sell the product of Jesus? It would go like this. The advertisement would go like this. Hi, I'm Paul, and I want to tell you about the product of Jesus. I used to have a job, money, friends, and lots of power. Today, I'm secretly shuffled from town to town where I'm routinely ridiculed, imprisoned, tortured, and occasionally bitten by snakes. You too can have the product of Jesus by calling 1-800-JESUS. May cause temporary blindness. <laughs> now look, this is something that Paul had to learn through suffering. Right? Paul didn't just get there. He didn't just arrive at this place. He had to learn this through suffering. There was meaning and purpose in suffering. He didn't just arrive. It was a learned process, which is part of why I don't think Paul just tells us, oh, you want to know the secret to contentment? Here's what it is. No, he doesn't say that. It's because I don't think he got it right away. I think it took him time to learn it. Verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in wants. He has been high, he's been low. In all circumstances, he's been in need, he's had plenty. You see, what Paul is suggesting to us is that contentment does not depend on our circumstances. And he closes in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. As he wraps us, as he wraps up this letter, he essentially leaves us with this, that God is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. Keller said, if grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it to go, as long as we have him. This morning, many of you may be wrestling with discontentment. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. Perhaps you're struggling with body image, anxiety, anger, singleness, pain of loneliness. Perhaps your doubts have consumed you and you don't really believe in God and you haven't really talked about it. Maybe there's a secret sin or an addiction that's growing and, and you continue to keep it in the dark and it has eroded your worship and you feel stuck. This morning, I keep saying this morning, this evening, I'm used to preaching in the morning. This evening, I want you to hear that you're not stuck. That no addiction, no pain, no circumstance can leave you stuck. 
Because there is nothing as powerful as the cross of Christ. And I truly believe that. Now here's the beauty of Paul telling us this. You see, Paul has experienced it all. He's experienced being in prison. He's experienced suffering. He's experienced the highs of life, the lows of life. But he isn't the perfect example of contentment. I believe we have an even better example of contentment in Jesus. We've seen true contentment in the flesh. When he was in the garden, before he was going to be crucified, Jesus was, uh, there were sweats or, or sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground, absolute stress and anxiety. And in the midst of that, what did Jesus say? He said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. On the way to the cross, Jesus was the ultimate example of contentment. I'm going to invite the band to come back. We're going to close with the song that I asked them to play because I think it, uh, it encapsulates this idea very well. It's called Even When It Hurts. And I, and I want to suggest that wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know um, where you're discontent, where, where that, that lies in your heart. It's only something that you and God can wrestle with. But as we sing, as we continue in worship, I hope that you don't leave this place until asking yourself these questions. What is it? What is that thing or that person that you feel like if, if, if I could just have that, I would be content because I believe the only thing that can truly bring us contentment is a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you have that, but you've wandered. Maybe you don't have that at all. Maybe you desire that. I don't, I don't know where you're at. I'm available to talk if you want to talk. I know that you have all kind, there are all kinds of people here who would love to talk with you. Christian would love to talk to you, whoever. But don't leave this place until you wrestle with those questions, until you ask yourself the hard questions. I feel like I squandered such a large part of my life because I, I just got stuck in my discontentment. I don't want you to be there. I don't believe God wants you to be there. So my prayer for you is that you would wrestle with these things now. It's the best place to do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you can do now only what you can do. That you would accomplish what you can accomplish. I pray for courage for the men and women who are dealing with discontentment. I pray that they would turn to you for their source of hope and purpose. For those who are stuck, whether it's sin, whether it's depression, anxiety, hopelessness, loneliness, wherever people are at, Lord, I pray they would know they're not stuck, that you provide a way out, that you provide hope. Lord, we thank you for those who have been healed. I pray that those who are not in that place would no longer accept the chains of, of secret guilt and shame, but they would openly confess their need for you that we would learn, that the people, people in this room and, and all of us would learn that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because death means being with you.